0: Uh, my name is Ron Waxman, and my next guest is Dr. Gary Means. Dr. Gary Means is a senior medical advisor and TCT director of the Cardiovascular Research Foundation. He is also a senior scientist and advisor at MedStar Cardiovascular Research Network. He has authored over a thousand articles in more than 850 abstracts concerning clinical cardiology, cardiac ultrasound, hemodynamics coronary arteriography, interventional cardiology, intravascular imaging, and physiology. In 2005, Dr. Mintz published the single author textbook, Intracoronary Ultrasound, now translated into Chinese. Dr. Mintz received the Master of the Master's Career Achievement Award from TCTAP Cardiovascular Summit in 2014 in Seoul, Korea, and many other awards in China and other places, uh, Poland, a um, very well-recognized individual. So welcome, Gary.
1: Thanks, Ron. Thank you for having me.
0: And it looks like you do have a passion to imaging, and maybe you can tell us where this is all coming from.
1: Well, I'm a, first of all, I'm a very visual person. Um, um, my mom was an artist, and my main hobby has always been black and white film photography. So that's part of who I am, and... As a medical student, you don't have a lot of opportunity to do research, but one of the areas that I got interested in very early was coronary imaging or I should say cardiac imaging. So I did some very early echo work. I started doing some 2D echo work when I was a cardiology fellow. At that time, 2D machines were built into a room. There was no such thing as portability. I had my first 2D echo unit in 1977 when I was a first-year fellow. And I wrote my first papers in 1978 on 2D ECHO. And then when ultrasound became applied to um, uh, intravascular imaging, and I was also a busy interventional cardiologist as well as director of the ECHO lab, it became a natural marriage of two interests. Um, especially in the early days, you if you wanted to interest interventionalists in intravascular imaging, you had to be able to talk their language. You couldn't walk in like you were this echocardiographer who didn't even know what a balloon was and try to convince them what to do. So it was a natural marriage of both interests and um, um, professional experience. So
0: you mentioned something that I don't think we're going to find anymore uh- in our era, a director of ECHO lab and also an interventional cardiologist. Uh, it looks like you're combining invasive and non-invasive together in one profession.
1: You know who else did? Harvey Feigenbaum.
0: Was he an interventional cardiologist? Yeah,
1: I don't know if he was, in, but he certainly was a um, an uh, invasive cardiologist. Um, but in those days, Ron, there weren't a lot of options. I mean, it wasn't as if you had Um, as if cardiology had fragmented into 10 sub -sub subspecialties, you had echocardiography, you had electrocardiography, you had the cath lab, I mean, you didn't have much else. And I always had broad interests, So uh, it was easy, or at least for me easy to be an interventionalist, but also to be um, an echocardiographer.
0: And if I recall, uh, you were practicing at that time in Pennsylvania.
1: In Philadelphia, Philadelphia. place that was Hahnemann, that's now part of Drexel University.
0: So I know you uh, when I was a fellow at Emory, but you came to visit us one time, and at that time you already were at the Washington Hospital Center. So how did you move from this uh, joint practice of echo and intervention all of a sudden to the Washington Hospital Center?
1: Well, I had a sabbatical and um, part of the problem was my, when, when my sabbatical started, we entered the first Gulf War. So it wasn't as if I had a lot of flexibility to go internationally for sabbatical. And I had known Marty f- casually. In fact, I tried to recruit him to Philadelphia once. Upon a time, and so when I had a sabbatical, and I knew that they were forming CRF at the Washington Hospital Center, I called him and I said, "Marty, I have a sabbatical." And he says, "Well, come down and meet the guys." And um, before I started, he called me and he says, "You know, you have the background to intra- to do intravascular imaging, particularly ultrasound-based. No one else does. So would you just take over the the project?" But I had a sabbatical, and. Um, it was just the right place, the right time. Very, 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 very early in CRF. And we're talking about 1991, January.
0: And that's a pretty much the birth of a intervascular ultrasound or that was prior to that? I mean, just to remind us.
1: Yeah, there, there was, um, Paul Yacht gets the credit and his seminal poster was in 1988. Um, at that time, there were in 1991. There were like four companies. There was Paul Yox Cevis that was bought by Boston Scientific. There was a company called Intertherapy that was bought by Sevis and then obviously by Boston Scientific. There was Endosonics, that's now Volcano, and um, there was a um, a combination between Diasonics and um part of also what is now Boston Scientific but these were all very very early projects if if you looked at those catheters you wouldn't want to put them into coronary arteries and if you looked at the images you had no idea what you were looking at so it was really very 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 early but Ron when you know the early days of 2D Echo were no better the images were terrible so you had to learn how to look through noise and snow and artifact to see the value in an image.
0: And how is that received by, uh, at that time, your new partners at the Washington Hospital Center? you bring a machine, it slows the procedure, you can barely see something except you. I mean, how, tell us how this was integrated into an interventional cardiology field.
1: Well, uh, they did it. I didn't do it. You know, they would have a problem with a case and they would say, Gary, do you think you can help? So they're the ones who came to me. I mean, I didn't say we have to do this, we have to do this, we have to do this. They recognized cases that were problematic. Remember, it was a time, Ron, where you had balloons and you had the very, very early new devices, early DCA, early rotoblator, early eczema, you know, the first Palma shot stent. So they were looking for help in difficult cases where the tools were very primitive. Um, I didn't have to sell them, um, you know, they came to me. And
0: yet you may, you would imagine, even knowing what's today, you see by imaging that, uh, how can you even do it without imaging? And yet, Pete, uh, we never took off more than 20% of the high days. right?
1: I know. I know. I I mean, I have my own theories as to why that happened. Um, Part of it is that um, the general interventional tools got somewhat better. Uh, The um, imaging technology was always cumbersome. Uh, There were product recalls and catheter recalls, and failure of equipment and equipment had to be rebooted. They're very, very, very clunky. And of course, the images were difficult. People would not take the time to learn them. Um, education was primitive, uh, the um, uh, clinical studies were always chasing the previous device. So they chased balloons when we were doing new devices and they chased dig- uh, directional atherectomy when the world had moved on to stents and they chased bare metal stents when the world had moved on to um, drug eluding stents. So they're always several years behind what was happening in interventional cardiology. Um, plus, I mentioned education. If you don't learn how to do this, and if you're not gonna take the time to understand the images, and that, that, that applies to all of imaging, not just ultrasound, it applies to um, OCT in the coronaries. It applies to a TE and a CT in structural. If you're not gonna take the time to learn the images, you, you won't learn how to use them correctly.
0: Yeah, and, and I still um, puzzled because um, like, for example, Antonio Colombo uh, came with I was The whole field actually was saved. The stent field was saved because we had so many stent thrombosis. It says, hey, you know, doing a good job. And you would expect that everybody would adopt it. And yet people were not necessarily adopting this. So you went through a whole phase of teaching, bringing small studies, some large studies, published meta-analysis. And still it was always looks like there is a struggle to convince the ordinary interventional cardiologists outside than Japan and few centers in the US that this is a must tool for intervention.
1: Well, as I said, um, it, it's it's been difficult. I, part of the problem I think that the equipment f- took for a long time was not very user friendly. Uh, if you had three different machines from three different companies, there's no similarity whatsoever. So if you don't use something very often, the technicians don't know how to even set it up. Uh, there's general resistance to the technicians. And we published a paper about a year ago based on surveys done at CRF's fellows course, less than about about 10% of finishing fellows are taught how to interpret an image.
0: Yeah. And now we have mainly IBUS and OCT. So we have two modalities. Again, several companies in the field remains But uh, we also have interesting studies and maybe more consolidated data. So do you see, if you want to fast, if you can fast forward and look maybe five, six years from now, giving the way that we're doing more precision PCI that we would cross the 30, 40% utilization of those devices in intervention.
1: I am not good at predicting the future on. I would like to think so, but I'm also a realist who's been in this field for a long period of time, and I still think there are going to be hurdles to convince the, the, the clinical interventionalist. And remember, what's the average number of PCIs done per year in the US? Per interventionalist.
0: Yeah, well, we, we can definitely cross the million, right?
1: No, no, but n- not total, but ter- per person. What How does it? the average interventionalist do? 100 cases a year?
0: Oh, that's uh,
1: exactly. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe it's 75. How do you teach somebody who only does 75 PCIs a year to read an image that he might use? Even if he used it on 30% of his cases, Ron, he'll be using it, what? Um 15 cases a year, you know, once a month.
0: So, you know, we all uh, hear now more about the AI and machine learning and you can imagine, uh, and that's probably going to be available. Uh, You place the catheter, like you're putting a balloon catheter or a wire or transit catheter, you uh, put it in, you take it out and you're getting all the information to you. You don't need to read anything. It's just on a display. Uh, That's something that potentially can happen. I mean, we do have the technology to make it happen. Now, is that going to be a big change?
1: Um, well, first of all, it's already here. It's the OCT world. Um, you know, Abbott's done a great job. It's pretty close to exactly what you describe. Um, so it has to help. I mean, all these things have to help. Um, but whether people will still, I mean, people have to be convinced that the data is real and imaging helps. And there was an interesting survey that was published uh, both in your intervention and um, I believe in Circulation Japan. uh, Japan. Um, The Europeans were convinced, are convinced that intravascular imaging data is real and improves patient outcomes. Yet they had this whole range of excuses why they don't use it. Um, You know, I think everything has to help But is it going to make a difference and get across your threshold of 30 to 40% of PCI cases? I don't know.
0: Yeah, I'd say it remains to be seen. I'm optimistic because I think that actually there are two things that drive utilization is reimbursement and guidelines. And I think the recent studies may improve the guideline status and reimbursement is also somehow would be settled. So that means that that potentially can drive like the same way that physiology was driving. But even physiology is not fifty percent, right? It's no,
1: a- no, no, no. I mean, the difference between physiology, as I explained to people, is that you know, if somebody does inappropriate PCI, they can wind up in hot water or, or jail. If somebody doesn't do a good, a good job placing the stent, you know, the patient finds out a month later when the stent thrombosis or six months later when a restenosis. Uh, there's not this one-to-one relationship.
0: Yeah, you're not going to go to jail for that, but you may be paying a fine,
1: right? So Right, right.
0: So let's say uh, maybe shift gears to a completely different um, area, which you have been really pivot primarily in education. And I would say there are two types of, if I, if I have to just kind of point out, there is the education that you build in the far east primarily in countries like china and korea uh, somewhat also in japan and taiwan and i don't I, I wouldn't mention all the countries that you were there but uh, you really spent tons of time there and then the education in meetings like uh, tct i mean which was a model that you spend a lot in terms of creating the content so maybe talk to us about the two and i know they're completely different from each other so maybe we'll start with uh, education primarily in the Far East. What did you find there different compared to here in the US?
1: Yeah, um, the, first of all, the cultural run is very, very different and you can't lump all the, com- the countries together. Taiwan, Japan, Korea and China and India are totally different in terms of how people are taught, how they learn, how they interact with their seniors um some are more evidence-based and some are more hierarchical based you know there are countries where the senior guy is by definition right even if he doesn't know anything and that's just the way the culture is um but i've but as you mentioned i've gone there many many times and i've made many many friends up and down the the chain from the uh the technicians in the labs to the guys running the labs And I come in and I just talk. I show them cases. We do cases together. I offer to help them with some of the research projects. And they keep inviting me back, so I guess I'm doing something right. Um, Probably when you combine the fellows that I have trained in all of those countries, it's easily over 100. And now they're getting to the point that they're running their own programs. They're now um, chiefs of cardiology and directors of cath labs. And I find it unbelievably rewarding because I see these countries not by being a tourist, but by learning how they work with each other. It's almost of a a anthropologic sociologic tourism, as opposed to looking at this monument or or, um, that museum. Um, Do do you find
0: uh, some of them are behaving the same pattern that you did like becoming the local Gary means of, um, you know, in terms of educating, because again, it's a question of culture, but do you find the followers that do exactly what you've been doing in terms of
1: Yeah, I mean, there is a program that we started, or actually I started in China, maybe 2005. The whole idea was to train Chinese to become the next educators that has worked. Uh, and that was a real formal program sponsored at that time by Boston Scientific and still sponsored by Boston Scientific. But if you look at the earliest fellows that came from Asia, um, Young Ki Hong, for example, from Korea who first worked with SJ Park and now he's very senior at Junse University as, as well as some of his other colleagues, they're now educating the rest of Korea about um, about imaging. And Myung Ki Hong was the PI of IVIS XBL. Um, you go to Japan, and it's Takashi Kubo who's going to um, replace uh, Akasaka as the OCT guru in the country. Um, so, you know, they are busy interventionalists. So they don't have my freedom to travel, but they are certainly doing it within their own countries in a major way.
0: And with respect to meetings like uh, TCP uh, that you actually nice. were from the very, very beginning, developed that over the years and was a model for a lot of uh, um, duplication, imitation, uh, the live case, the style. I mean, where do you see that part is going? I mean, uh, is that completely needs to be changed now? Is the And we'll talk a little bit about the virtually in a moment. So maybe... Uh, things that you've seen evolve as as someone who were the director among the directors of the TCT meeting.
1: Well, you know, I tell people, there's no way that you could start a TCT from scratch today. It evolved from a tiny meeting of a few hundred people and grew little by little by little. In the beginning, we did everything ourselves. There was no professional staff. I mean, you know, the things that we would do to make TCT happen is, are now done by, um, you know, a cast of 30 people. The same holds true with CRT, Ron. You know, it, you need the professional or semi-professional staff to do the work. But it had to start from somewhere. Uh, you had to have a bit of a vision. You had to have a little bit of faith that if you did a good job, people would come. And it's critically important to do a good job. People don't want to go to a meeting that's poorly run and poorly organized. Um, They want to know that when they invest their time, it's going to be worthwhile. Uh, Where is it going? I don't know. Uh, know. This year has certainly put a wrench into things. But if we decide that the pandemic is a hiccup and that we'll eventually get back to some semblance of normalcy. You know, Taiwan still has their meetings. Taiwan um, TTT was as large this year as it was last year. Uh, China limits the size of meetings, but that's sort of an anomaly because that the Chinese government is being heavy handed. But if we decide that this year is a hiccup, I think there's always going to be a room for um, in person meetings, maybe not as large as they were before. Uh, but they're not Replaceable by virtual meetings. And I can tell you that I miss traveling to meetings, not because I miss sitting in a lecture or sitting on a panel or giving another talk that I've given a hundred times before. I miss talking to people, understanding what they're doing in a sort of ad hoc, almost random fashion, you know, not a planned Zoom call, but you're sitting down, you see somebody, How you sit down, you talk to them, and all of a sudden ideas form and projects materialize. Um, you know, there are all sorts of projects that were on the cusp of getting um, off the ground in in China and in Korea that are also on hold. and And, and they don't come from a Zoom call, I'm sorry. They come from people having a meeting of the minds at the right place at the right time. And I also miss um, visiting the, you know, different hospitals and hearing the work that the junior guys are doing and commenting on their projects and suggesting ways that they they can use their data or, um, you know, ways that they can evolve their research. Um, that's how I see, um, the field developing. And I really hope that we get back to some semblance of that.
0: Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. It's not just about the data, because you can read the paper, you can see the PowerPoint presentation, but you miss the interaction, uh, the face to face, the discussion, the meeting with the industry, the talking about new projects, the investigator meetings, a lot of things that's going on that is uh, probably more important than the actual content that you get. You know, by yeah. late breaking
1: time. you know, and then the international meetings, Ron, have been so instrumental in the growth of interventional cardiology because it has leveled the expertise internationally. I won't say that every interventionalist in every country is great, but the good people are good everywhere. And that's a lot because not only of experience, but because of shared. I lost your sound, uh, Gary. Sorry, my fault. Um, uh, so, um, meetings. right. I mean, th- the international meetings have been critical to the growth of interventional cardiology. It's the shared knowledge, the shared technique. It's the live demonstrations broadcast internationally. I still remember the first international live cases from Milan and Kokura, Colombo and Nobioshi. It was a revelation. Um, and it's not as if every interventionist in every country is great, but the good ones in every country are equally good. And that's because of the shared experience, the shared knowledge um, and uh, it's become a global community. I mean, I have two brothers, they're both doctors. One's a pediatrician and one's an anesthesiologist. This doesn't exist in other fields.
0: Yeah, and and I think that's a, a, I think a big contribution. And and I do recognize TCT as the pioneers and in the US the largest meeting that started this. But I always think to myself, where our fields look the same, should TCT would not been existing. And there were a lot of criticism on TCT and we don't have to discuss the pro and cons, but I think the fact that there was a meeting like that and then PCR and then maybe in other countries, some other meetings, I don't think that the field would have looked the same without those meetings.
1: No way. No way. Um, so I'll tell you a story that most people probably don't know. Andreas Grunzik was barred from traveling by his institution because he's becoming too famous. So people said, can I visit you? And he said, sure, except all of a sudden he had 100 people who wanted to come into lab at the same time. And it was that impetus that created the live demonstration courses, because people wanted to see him work. And there was no way to do that. And so um, the, when he moved when he moved to Emory It became, you know, a natural way of expanding the live demonstration courses. And of, of course, that was the um, the nidus of the way we teach and we showcase what it is that we do.
0: Yeah, but unfortunately, this uh, year and maybe the next year, I mean, if we went through 2020, CRT was the last face-to-face meeting in our field, and um, we're running now into a virtual meeting that's starting next week. But the question is, uh, how do we make those virtual meetings better? Because, you know, there's one thing that uh, this is a situation. We are there in the virtual uh, space. We have seen several virtual meetings so far, I must say, I was not that impressed as what we have seen with the face to face. So we have to kind of reinvent the whole idea of having virtual meetings. And maybe there is only one plus in them because not everybody can travel. And many people who wants to come, they cannot come and they don't have the funds or they don't have the time. So we can look at some positivity in virtuals that probably won't go away completely. But how do we make it better?
1: Well, I can tell you what I think works really well. I think virtual live cases work well. I'm not talking about edited cases in the box. I'm, I'm talking about a start to finish live case with a panel and where people can ask questions on the chat and other people will answer. That works well. I think that the lectures I mean, you can record lectures and host them online. That works, I think, less well. And I'd like to find some way of improving, um, you know, improving lectures. Um, I think that presentation of late breaking trials probably does work well because there's a sense of immediacy. It's almost like watching CNN or um, any other news network. Um, and I, so I think maybe the answer is picking and choosing what works well and focusing on that. Um, you know, but-
0: I, I agree with you. I mean, that's the way that we design CRT virtual. I mean, it's all going to be live. There is nothing recorded except some backlog of not the best up abstract, but the second to the best.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, and the second to the interesting cases, but we are actually featuring, um, everything live i mean it's all live it's zoom you can say whatever you want to say you can chat uh we would have control on the mics that's the only thing just for clarity but see how it goes
1: i mean i'll tell you who i think are really suffering are the very junior people because if you have a live in-person meeting there's a place for them to do something you know, it's presenting a poster, it's presenting an abstract. Nobody's going to ask, you know, a, a first-year fellow to give a lecture on, you know, on a virtual meeting. So I really think that that's um, that's hurting them a lot.
0: Uh, Gary, it's great talking to you, and we're coming to the end. Um, I, I'll give you the last word, but before that, I really like to thank you for all your contribution. Uh, I think the awards that you got is very well deserved. I mean, you change a lot the field, and and I hope that you'll come to the day that you'll see that more and more utilizing and seeing imaging because we said before that uh, maybe the word of interventional cardiology would have been different without things like TCT, but I would say for sure that the field would have been different if Gary Mintz would not be there to push imaging, to continue to hammer on the companies to improve their technology and not giving them any discounts, to be very upfront with them and to do the amount of education that you did. So for that, I really can just thank you and commend you for the work that you do. And I'd like to keep, give you the, the last word of where do you see we heading from here?
1: Well, I'm not very good at predicting the future, but it's clear that minimally invasive approaches to vascular therapy will only grow and will continue to nibble away at open surgical procedures. And that's partly because of interventional cardiologists or um, vascular medicine specialists, but it's also because of the companies and the engineers. I don't think the companies and engineers, as much as we criticize what they do, they don't get quite enough credit. I mean, think about the tools that we have. Think about the idea that you've got this little scaffold made out of metal that is both rigid and flexible at the same time. Think about the miniaturization that's been done. I never believed that Taver would be successful. Clearly, I was wrong. I mean, and that's, that's not you know, maybe you know some smart cardiologists had the idea, but without their engineering colleagues, nothing that we do would ever have been possible.
0: Well, Gary, thank you very much for this uh, time to come to us. To this, uh, my next guest is. Um, <clears throat> I feel fortunate that I can continue to work with you both on MCRN, uh, educating fellows, and also on some educational um, events and activities, and also for all your help for the CRM journals. So stay healthy, productive, and
1: uh, we'll see you shortly. Thank you for having me, Ron, and it was fun to talk to you.